sound like a <laughs> car sputtering out. Listen, on our Tuesday <laughs> episode, did I even say what's up and welcome to Mostly Film? You I don't didn't. think I did. It was a terrible open. Wow. <laughs> wow. Man, I didn't even realize that. You might have to overimpose yeah, and so, just give me a... Can, can you do that? Can you yeah. splice something from this one? Do it. They welcome to Mostly Film. Now, but I want you to leave this intro in here okay. for this one. So that they know. They're so that they the know. Joke. Yeah, now they know. Welcome to Mostly Film the Thursday edition <laughs> in review and a topic or two. And I am excited because listen here, Terry Gilliam was one of my all time favorite directors. Yeah. And JP is getting his Terry Gilliam virginity popped. I am. You've seen Monty Python, the Holy Grail. That is That's been it, about though, right? it. Yeah. yeah. So I've seen almost all of his films, but I got a new one in. I had not seen Tideland. So I got to watch that one this week. But this week we're breaking down the Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus and Tideland. And for me, the Imaginary of Dr. Parnassus, you know, I haven't watched it in a few years, but it was my like top five all-time favorite movies for me. And Tideland is one of his lowest rated movies I've ever seen. So, you know, we kind of chose two on the spectrum. Yeah. And I loved them both. So, wow. great. We've got a lot to discuss here. And then our topic or two, we're going to discuss some of our favorite best of the worst films that are either universally panned that we enjoy or films that are just honestly just terrible films by all rights, but we still enjoy because they're just so campy, they're good. So th that, that's what we're going to cover on this episode of Take 12 uh, of Mostly Film. Before we even talk about Tideland, yes. so now that you've seen Tideland yes. and Parnassus, Holy crap. so you've seen two Terry Gilliam films, yes. and you're, you you said recently you're excited for this. What, yes. what from these two movies, and they're oh. two tonally different films, what has you excited about Terry Gilliam? Because I feel like he's one of the most, you've seen a ton of movies like I have. Yeah. I feel like he. you see a Terry Gilliam film, you know it's a Terry Gilliam film, and then you, if you watch other movies, you're like, wow, this feels like a Terry Gilliam film. Yeah. Because he's been directing since the 70s. So, like, he's had, he, to me, and I said in my, one of my reviews, either Tideland or Parnassus, yeah. that he's probably the most creative and imaginative, it, talented directors in the 20th and 21st century. Yes. So, what I was trying to say, um, starting this movie, it felt very fantasy driven. Tideland. Yes, okay. Tideland. It felt very fantasy driven especially coming right off Parnassus. Right. So in saying that I wish I had watched Tideland first, um, I think I would have had less expectation or I wouldn't have uh, had so much, uh, had a different expectation for it mm -hmm. um, and kind of taken it in as what it was really meant to be. Um, but again, if you go into this as a Terry Gilliam fan, which I'm sure like that a was lot me. Of people, I hadn't yeah. seen Tideland. Yeah, then this really throws you off. It did. And I had and I felt like I was fully prepared for it too. Cause for years I've wanted to see Tideland, but couldn't find a way to do it. And it's actually on Tubi. Yeah. Shockingly enough. Uh to, and they also have the Fisher King on there, which I haven't seen the Fisher King with Robin Williams and Jeff Bridges, which is another Terry Gilliam film, yeah. one of his highest rated films. Yep. Um, which we'll get to in the next few weeks. But um, so I watched it on Tubi, but previously I didn't have a way to watch it. So I've just missed Tideland for years. What released in 2009, 2008? Tideland? Yeah. Five. 2005. Oh, I'm thinking of Parnassus. Yeah. Yeah, 2005. So I, I'd never seen Tideland, uh, but I had for years I've heard about how grotesque and dark and bleak and offensive and, yeah. you know, how it's just the bottom rung of Terry Gilliam. I think people think now after seeing it, and we'll talk about what the film is in a second. I think people just didn't expect it to not be Terry Gilliam. You know, and it is very Gilliam, but in a much more grounded way. Sure. Like this isn't, this isn't funny. It isn't oh, there, were, there were moments. That oh, were. Yeah, there were, but like, you know, like even seeing Parnassus and, you know, Monty Python and some of his other stuff, it doesn't have, and, and like, so, you know, you saw Parnassus too. Yeah. This isn't a, this isn't a trope film. 
you don't have a bunch of stars. You really have one titular star in this film. Yeah. And that's different than a lot of other Terry Gilliam films. Garrett Gilliam broke his own mold here. Kind of what we were talking about in the previous episode with Guy Ritchie seemingly doing with yeah. the Covenant. Yeah. You know, this is different for Terry Gilliam. And I think people just didn't, I think a lot of people were expecting that. And when you don't have that, I mean, there are moments like I think of in Tideland, because uh, basically what Tideland is, is like, Go ahead. Yeah, no, they have here is uh, because of the actions of her irresponsible parents, a young girl is left alone on a decrepit country estate and survives inside her fantastic imagination. Right. So it's basically, I said in my review, it's like a perverted, a perversion of Alice, a dark and twisted perversion yes, of Alice. Which in she references the movie a lot, yeah, especially the in the beginning. The book. The book. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and yeah, there's a lot of Alice in Wonderland symbolism in the film. Yes. Um, and that worked for me. I thought it was yeah. great. I thought it was a very dark take on it yeah and in that when i when i when i think of terry gilliam i associate things with like lsd trippy like you saw parnassus sure. you know it's yeah it's a fever dream this isn't that it has its moment like i think of the underwater scene in the house where the water the wave comes and sweeps them up i think of some other stuff like some that different dream sequences yes that, yeah and that was like oh wow like immediately this is terry gilliam this is what i associate gilliam with but as a whole that wasn't the point of this film that wasn't what he was going for which i think was why he kept that as like a sprinkle in there rather than being like a focal point of the film. Yeah. And that worked for me. I, I, I don't think that worked for a lot of people though. Yeah. I think people, it, it was a very heavy film and there were parts in this film. I said in my review, it made me literally like grimace. Mm. Like, you know, we'll talk about it. There's one scene with Brendan Fletcher and, uh, what's the girl's name? Uh, uh, Jodell, uh, Jodell Furland. Yes. I was like, uh, like this, this yeah. feels gross and grody. I don't like it, you know? Yeah. But, it was great. Like, you know what I mean? Like it was perfectly orchestrated. There, he got the response that he wanted, but not just for getting for a response for responses sake. Like this is really a masterful film. Like I'm, I'm going to probably talk myself up another rating just talking about wow. Tideland. Like yeah. I love this film. So let's talk, unless you have something else to add, I, that, that's just kind of like a, Hey, let's tantalize the people. Let's yeah. talk about the actual, like what the film is. Yeah. Itself. So go right into it. All right. So Tideland, it, it, it follows Jodell, Far, Furlins, that's her name, uh, and her her name is Jalaza. Uh, was it Jalaza Rose? Jalaza Rose. And I want to talk about that right now. Yeah, it took me a minute to get into her performance. Yeah, I really hated it for like a quarter of the way through the film. It, yeah, because she her 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 accent, no exaggeration, is about like this the yeah. whole time, and it came off as disingenuous. Yeah, and hammy. Yeah, but the more I watched it, it all I I, I know it wasn't. Yeah, based on her parents, but I almost I think I came to terms with it to where I accepted it and became okay with me as a part of her escape into her fantastic her yes. fa fan fantasy. You know, yeah. So that's how I rationalized that. Otherwise, it, I don't think I ever could have overcome the accent. I, I would have never had, had realized that until she has the first interaction with her dolls. Um, whenever she switches, um. And that's the, that's the thing about this movie as as it slowly kind of dives into the rabbit hole of mm -hmm. insanity, it um, Eliza kind of monologues with herself. Yeah, yeah, Eliza um, kind of monologues with herself, and it like I was like you the first half of this movie, I was kind of frustrated and annoyed with this performance. Yeah, because, I was ready not to like it because yeah, of it. Yeah, and I think that a lot of people. Are very quick to write stuff off mm -hmm. and, and just judge it and that probably could be the I'll reason. be honest I just I think if this wasn't a Terry Gilliam film mm -hmm. I would have 
Yeah. I, I wanted to like the movie. So I was like, all right, I've got to push. I can, I can like this movie despite the accent. Yeah. And I pushed through. And yeah. I'm glad I did because I think, like I said, and we're talking about, it works with the overarching narrative of the film. And I feel like I can understand it. Totally. Uh, so, so yeah, Jeliza Rose, I definitely was like you. I didn't like her performance. Especially um, for the first half. So let's stop with the first yes. half of the film. Yeah. So yeah. you open in, or, you know, a, you know, a house it's full of, you know, it's a trash, like almost hoarder, like, yeah. uh, living squalid kind of her dad, Jeff Bridges is just a deadbeat junkie, alcoholic junkie, a heroin addict. And so was her mother, uh, yeah. who was also a heroin addict. And in the opening scenes, this is a 2005 movie. So you're going to get spoilers. Uh, just, just right now, just telling you, uh, good, good, good job. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I, I think, I think once you're two, you know, you're five years removed from a film, spoilers are fair game. We're, Almost 20. Uh, so anyway, her parents are both addicts and her mother dies uh, and is also like schizophrenic, bipolar, seems to be. She's out there wild. Yeah. Uh, they have a moment on the bed that seems it's going to be endearing then quickly turns into her calling her a little bitch and like smacking her on the side of the head. And, yeah. Um, but, you know, she's obviously you pick up to her. How old is she? Probably eight, nine, ten years old. I would say ten. Ten. Yeah. Um, yeah. Eight's too young. Yeah. yeah. Probably ten years old. And um if you can fill up a syringe of heroin, you got to be at least 10. Yeah, yeah. It's just a rite of passage. <laughs> Not for me, but for some kids nope. out there, I guess. Uh, but, you know, she she like rationalizes all this because of how much she's been abused physically, mentally, and I would wager other ways too. Um, and she, she, you know, all the stuff that her mom does, she's able to like talk away, rationalize away through her little Barbie head she keeps on her fingers. Yeah. But she witnesses her mom overdose and die. She witnesses her dad then handle it in a very, like, Oh my gosh, let's wrap her up in a blanket, throw some things on there that she loves. Let's burn her alive. Yes. Or burn her. It's it's the uh coked out, methed out reaction that you expect, you know, of someone that knows they're they're gonna get caught. Like yeah. they have to get out of here. Yeah. So, so Jeff Bridges is the dad and very irresponsible, realizes that the wife has passed from a heroin overdose. Yeah. Their house is probably full of it. So it's like, we gotta go right now. And he's gives, like gives her tweaking. a vi- a Viking funeral. Yes, literally. Yeah. <laughs> Lights yeah. are on fire. Yeah. And then like the girl, the daughter has to be the voice of reason. Like, hey, you can't do that. That's yeah. going to draw attention. He's like, good point. Yeah. Let's leave. So they get on a Greyhound and they go stay at his mom's place. Did yeah. I say a playground or I say a Greyhound? Greyhound. Okay. I was it. like, did I say they got on a <laughs> playground and left? Wouldn't be surprised. No. They get on a Greyhound and go and like the interactions, like Jeff Bridges just doesn't know how to be a father because all he is is an addict. Uh, yeah. And it's very awkward and uncomfortable. Like he's acting like a five year old the whole time on the bus ride there. And like, he's like passing gas and like blaming it on the girl. And she's like, so socially awkward and unkempt that they're just like yelling at each other on the bus. And like, everybody's uncomfortable with it. Yeah. It it was hard. It's kind of hard to watch. Like I got like, it's a movie and I got like secondhand embarrassment from watching the scene. Uh, So kudos to Jeff Bridges and Ferland for their acting on that. And the bus scene specifically, because I I found it difficult to watch. Yeah. Uh, And it was like kind of maybe even supposed to be lighthearted, but, I found it kind of gross. Listen, uh, everything about this was trying to be lighthearted, but doesn't th- yeah. th- doesn't. I, actually, I don't think it was. Really, I don't know. I I think Terry Gilliam was trying to be a little. No, I I think he was very uh, heavy handed. Is not the right word, but he was he was being very forward as far as the realities of this this yeah, movie. Yeah, which we'll it, get more maybe into. it's a self aware humor. Yes. Uh. So so they get they're on the bus. It's you're you're starting to get the vibe that you know she's kind of what she's gone through and what she's had to deal with. And once they get to the house, it's a old farmhouse that has just been abandoned for who knows how long graffitied. It's all 
broken down, uh, filled with insects, squirrels, you know, just infested. And that's where they're going to stay. That's where they're going to live now. Uh, and in the opening scenes of them moving into this new place, Jeff Bridges is like, hey, I'm going to go on a vacation, which is what he calls it when he, their daughter shoots him up with heroin and he yeah. ODs and he dies. But the daughter, uh, Ferlin, doesn't really... Well, she probably does realize it. Well, he he makes a comment of like, you know, make sure it's an extra long vacation. Yeah. And so, so it, it, it was like a, you know, suicide. I, I, would, I don't know if I'd go that far. I, I think he kind of was Russian roulette. Gotcha. With it. I, I think it was kind of, I, I, the way I read it is he just was ready to go. Mm. And, you know, cause he didn't care about the daughter. Yeah. I think that was apparent. Um, so I think that's a nice way for self-interpretation for the film, you know, cause to me, I thought it was suicide. You didn't. So yeah. I, I, I like the dichotomy there, but you know, she leaves it and I don't think she realizes. So he dies. He ODs. I don't think she realizes it. So she keeps, you know, going to sit with him each day and each day you start noticing more flies. You know, they start making comments about the smell. Yeah. She starts putting makeup she, on him in a wig. She makes a comment uh, earlier, I think even before she has the first interaction with him about the tongue swelling up. Like she's talking about her mother when she passes. Yeah. It's like her tongue swelled up in her head. Yeah. And you you, you even notice uh, Jeff Bridges' character's tongue like sticking more and more out. Turning purple. And, yeah. yeah. I was just His disgusting. body's decaying. Yeah. And she keeps sitting up there cuddling with him, like talking to him. Yeah. And like she pushes into him and his body's bloated and like the there's, dead air pockets part popping out. There's and, different moments. Yeah. Because they say he's cutting biscuits. Or, cutting biscuits. That's yes. what it was. Yeah. Uh, and then there's different moments like where, because he puts his sunglasses on, where she different moments after where she goes to take off the sunglasses and she stops and you think, okay, now she's going to realize he's passed and it's just putting off the inevitable. And she knows, but she, she's escaped into this. It's, yes. Because of all of her, uh, you know, chronic abuse. Yeah. She's just learned to escape into her wonderland. Exactly. Um, and one, and one of her big escapisms is she has about five, four, five, six four. Barbie hit, four Barbie heads, four Barbie heads that she just keeps on her fingertips and they are like, do you remember the names? No. Do you, uh, glitter, Glitter, Glitter girl. Gal? Glitter gal. Yeah. Uh, baby doll or baby something. Ma- oh, shoot. Uh, Matilda? No, no. What was it? I'm going to find out right now. Glitter gal. Uh, Tideland uh, doll names. It'd be great if I just made a note the, of this. They're, oh, they're, you know what they're called? What? The Golden Throats. What? No, they're not. Yeah. Why? <laughs> That's the name of them. There's no reference to that, though. I, maybe there was, and I missed it. That's amazing. Uh, there's a musical number in here? Uh, I think there's... There's like a... Mu- there's like a yeah, musical Golden scene. Throats. Wow. Wow. That's uh, a whole fandom. It's Mystique, Satine Lips, Baby Blonde, and Glitter Gal. Baby Blonde. That's what I was going to forget. And Mystique. Mystique's the Mystique. main one for a while. So yeah, those are the the those are the golden throats. Oh, those wow. are the those are the dolls that she keeps on her um, the fingertips that kind so, of are her split personalities. So it wasn't until we first uh, uh, interact with the 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 what what are they? the golden throats? The golden throats. Golden. It wasn't until golden. Uh, it wasn't until then uh, that I kind of realized. See, look at that top one, the golden throats. Wow. Yeah. So strange. Yeah. It wasn't until we first have that interaction that I'm, I realized, like, okay, this this is um, Jodell's, like, actual acting ability. Like, there's mm-hmm. more there than just a, a terrible it, accident. It wasn't accent. until midway, like, maybe 
20 minutes into the moving to the new yeah. location that I realized like, okay, wait, there's more to this. Yeah. And like I said, the golden throats helped get there. Absolutely. Um, so you start to see the unraveling, like you start to see that she is psychotically broke. Um, and you know, she uses these dolls as a coping mechanism Yeah, and they help her overcome one. They're like different personalities they're different emotions. Yeah. One's fear, one's jealousy, one's kind of, um, uh, like an like kind of an anger and one's like an encourager, like a, you can be better, yeah. like a, you know, strengthen, like I'll go, we can do this together. Um, so they all represent a different parts of her that she's delved into these characters that she, you know, that she's too afraid to be. And, at, you know, as she's out here, she starts going to the weeds and she starts seeing this lady in black. Yeah. That's fluttering along the fields. You think is a ghost. Is she a ghost? Is she not a ghost? Finally, they interact. Uh, it is Janet McTeer, who, if you've seen Ozark, she's a lawyer from Ozark. So it was weird seeing her in this role after seeing her such a prim cunt cutthroat. I, I did not say what that sounds like. She, a clear cut. So I was yes. trying to say cutthroat. And I definitely sounds like. Also in, recently in the menu, too. She was. Yeah. She was the critic. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, it's weird seeing her in this role because she. Um, it's a weird. Her performance was very strange because. I said she had her crowning moments littered throughout it, but like in a lot of Gilliam films, a lot of a lot of actors do. Yeah. They also fall victim to becoming kind of campy and exaggerative. Yes. So, and McTeer's no exception here. I thought she had some really good moments, like really good moments. Then I also thought, I think it's half and half. Half of her performance I really vibed with. Half of her performance I thought was too out there, like in terms of like too overdone. Yeah. Um, but that's, as you I, as you delve into more Gilliam too, I think you'll see that as a trend with a lot of the actors. Yeah. Um I, I think that's just some of the uh the vices that directors have sometimes mm-hmm. in writing for for uh these types of characters. Um one of the main things I realized just in this movie alone was you're you're meant to feel a certain way when the camera shifts just a little bit. Yeah, There's sure. so many different angles and, and a lot of the times whenever we are with uh, the lady in black, um, or <coughs> when, we're, uh, when we're with her, everything's just off. And yep. um, I think that's intentional, Del. obviously. Her name's yeah, Del. 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 Yeah. Um, but Del as a character, I think worked really well. Oh, yeah, it was great writing. Like yeah. the, 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 the plot of her was great. So, you know, she she keeps seeing Dell out and about, and she's very creepy, blonde in one eye, and is very strange. And that that that's just a common theme with Dell. She's very strange, um, but she acts up. She's not a ghost. She's real. Yeah. We don't find that out till a little bit later. Very saved. Yeah. <laughs> she's singing hymns and yes, all this uh, stuff like uh, hyper saved. Yeah. Um. So it turns out she's real. She lives in a neighboring house. You know, maybe by, by yeah. the way she runs, maybe maybe about a half mile or less away. Yeah. In this, you know, adjacent to the field on a country road. Um, and Dell realizes finally who she is because she knew her dad, Jeff Bridges, um, aka Noah, was her father, and she had a relationship with yeah. Noah. Um, and they were they were lovers at some point. Yeah. So, you know, Dell goes over to the house and realizes Noah's there and Noah's dead. Um, and long story short, she is a taxidermist, is what Dell kind of does as a yeah. hobby. You, because she has like a whole, you know, shed full of taxidermy stuff that she does and some weird stuff too. Um, so she taxiderms Noah, and they're gonna live forever. Now her whole, she's been kind of cold and standoffish to, yeah. uh, Jeliza for, for a long time. Wanted her to stay Just away. Call her Rose, yeah, call it Rose. Uh, you know, 
kind of called her troublemaker, or heathen, yeah. all this other stuff because she has a mentally handicapped son, played by Brendan Fletcher, uh, whose name was <laughs> we are Dickens. In- we are introduced before she finds before Noah Del even realizes who she is. Who she is? Yes. Yes. So she doesn't want no. Uh, Dickens around Rose, yes, because she thinks he's a bad. She's a bad influence. Plus, you know, her son's mentally handicapped. So yeah. She's just bad times all around, and she's also crazy. But when she does realize who she is, and she realizes Noah's her dad, and that she has access to his body, she her whole perception to Rose changes. Yeah, and now she wants to be a family. So Dale kind of takes on this motherly role for a very brief time with Rose and Dickens, and they're a whole happy family again. They renovate the house, kind of paint it, clean it up you know, make it livable kind of to a degree. And then the sheen kind of wears off. And, uh, yeah. what, what, well, what was the big breaking point? Really? I mean, really it's after the taxidermy scene. Um, it, it, it's because at that point, um, at that point, Dell or not Dell, um, Rose and, uh, Dickens have, uh, Dickens, you find out, in their first encounter, he, he kind of acts like the, this field that they're in is like an ocean. Mm-hmm. And he calls himself like he's a captain or, or yep. whatever. And the train is yes. the great, big, great white, basically. He has this submarine that he, he calls uh, Leslie or something mm-hmm. like that. Uh, and his his big goal, his big mission in life is to uh, kill these sharks that are mm-hmm. out there. And the big shark is this train that runs right through. In the middle of the two houses. Yeah, in the yep. middle of these two houses. Um, he says he lays out bait for it, which ends up being the, these little shotgun pennies. shells. No, oh, he put the shotgun shells out there that oh, one time because yeah. they shot out. Yes. Uh, yeah. but yeah. It, so you basically, you know, right off the bat that something is, is really off with Dickens and everything. Well, besides the obvious mental handicap. Yes. Which he, which you turn to find out, I didn't realize until after I watched it. Mm-hmm. I don't think he was always that way because you know, he has a huge scar <laughs> yeah, on his head. It's had, from where he drove the school bus in front of the train. And the train hit it because remember he was saying because he said he can't go to the train, can't go to the train or can't go to the bus because Rose was trying to get him to go there. Yeah. He said, I can't go there. That's a bad place. He goes, what do you mean it's a bad place? He said, the sheriff, whatever the sheriff's name will come and he'll say, Dickens, you can't drive that bus on the school track. Oh, well, uh, it's no, I, he, he he's he's that way because he has epilepsy. I thought he got he all that surgery. from the bus. No. Wreck. Oh, no, I think he was born with it. OK. See, I thought he got brain trauma from driving the bus onto the. Yeah. Train tracks. No, I think that okay, I that think that more... was that was a cause and effect. Like okay, a, gotcha. That makes more sense. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Um. So Dickens, the biggest takeaway from Dell meeting Rose, yeah, and kind of taking this whole thing in, besides the whole weird finds she finds out that Dell and her dad had a thing, yeah, back in the day, is that Dickens and Rose become like best, best, best friends. <laughs> Silly kissers. Silly effect. kissers. So, um, you want to jump in and talk about that yeah, for a so, second? So yeah, if, as the story progresses, the relationship, uh, Dell or uh, Rose becomes infatuated with Dickens. Um, and Dickens is extremely mentally handicapped. Yes, and it, I want to talk about it for a second. Yeah, go for it. Brendan Fletcher nails it. Yeah. So I've worked with some people who are handicapped, similar to yeah the way Dickens is, and Dickens, Brendan Fletcher, what he does with Dickens, yeah, it's probably the Cuba Gooding Jr. being the diff- the other one absolutely nails this role. Like yeah. it, it you forget that he's acting. I 
I think there's a lot of people that watch a performance like this that think, wow, this is really exploitative. Like, and people did. That's what I said in my review. This, How are you going to say this? Not say that about Jamie Foxx, Cuba Gooding Jr., and Johnny Knoxville of all people. And now yeah. Knoxville got some blowback. Yeah, but people really hated Brendan Fletcher's here. Fletcher's performance was the least ex- exploitative like thing in this movie. I agree. I, th- I thought I, he was uh, great. Yeah, I thought he was great. I understand why he didn't get award attention, but I I think he should have. Yeah. So as uh, as Rose and Dickens kind of. Uh, their friendship kind of grows. Rose becomes infatuated with him. Um, in talking, mm-hmm. uh, one time Dickens talks about uh, while he's at Rose's house, um, her grandma, her grandma's house. He mentions to her that yeah, whenever I was little, the old lady here, which would have been Rose's grandma, her Noah's mom, yes, would would kiss me and, and like slip tongue. He was showing yeah, her shit. yeah, and shows so, her. So basically, she molested. Yeah, you, the, 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 your turn to believe that. She molested the mentally yes. handicapped boy. Uh, so it, I, that's what I was going to say at the beginning of this. It, it just goes to show that Rose has lived a very messed up life. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and Noah, her dad did. It's just a systematic failure of abuse and, and system and systematic failure. So it, it's really tragic. So now, so now Dickens and Rose have found this common bond in trauma. Yeah. And, become like you say silly silly, uh, they say silly kissers and this is some of the stuff that made me grimace because brendan fletcher a being nailing the mentally handicapped role being also an adult yeah and rose being a child who's psychologically broken do kiss yeah and like i was like no i it made me feel not good yeah made me feel very sick now it wasn't like a sexual kiss you know what i mean yeah uh it was very innocent yeah. very innocent like it would be between a mentally handicapped person and a child but it still felt wrong that's the point yes and and, and, and like i wrestled with it and i was like i i struggled with it at first and and it was one of those things that i realized um and this sounds that sounds so weird saying it but um if it had been anyone other than a mentally handicapped person mm-hmm. like there there would be a right for more out out outrage um as the story goes on, like Rose in her mental condition, I think pushes this more than anything. You know, mm-hmm. Dickens isn't the necessary like pursuer, instigator, and in all. No, of this. definitely like, not. It was Rose. Yes, and, and, but it, but she's also a child. Exactly, a very broken child. Yes, so it's hard to fall. I mean, anybody. Yeah. So, you know, it it is it is what it is. But that's what. You know, Gilliam is asking those hard questions. He's not pulling the punches. He's giving yeah. a unabashed yeah. look at failure of uh, of traumatic life failures. Uh, so I, I thought it, I thought it worked really good. Uh, and that at the end, you know, you find out that Dell has been keeping her mom there. She's all taxidermied there, and that's what really breaks. And you know, yeah, Brendan goes into a great acting seizure, and yeah. you know, the train blows up. He ends up killing the shark. He kills the shark. And like at the end when the lady's like trying to figure out what's going on, you know, I just didn't trust her either. Really? No, I just, I, the, Gilliam had me all messed up. I was like, this lady means has ill attentions. No, no, I didn't trust. I, I, I felt like the ending was the, the, the best way to end it. Mm-hmm. Um, no, honest- I liked the ending. I just didn't trust her. I know. And I know I could. I just was like, man, I don't trust any of the adult figures in this film. Yeah. The, the, because there's there's a lot of layers for this this movie. Yes, a lot. He said, uh, and that's the difference between Gilliam and Shalomon. He says a lot, and I understand what he said. He got the point across. Okay. <laughs> so something that wasn't outright, but in thinking back on this and kind of like no no preparing and trying to talk about this, 
the whole Dale character arc to me was mm-hmm. super impressive. Yeah. Um, you know, she when we first meet her, she's like singing these uh old hymns type mm-hmm. stuff in this field. And uh, you know, whenever she brings Rose into the family, basically, they're praying and all this stuff. You know, you say like there's a shift where you know, she's kind of keeping Rose at a distance and then realizes who she is. It's not she's happy to see Rose. She's no, just happy to have Noah back hap- even in death. Yes, right, right. Yes. And I think, um, you know, she's trying to keep him, uh, keep her away from Dickens because she's trying to protect him because she knows yeah. the damage that her mother had. Um, in family dynamics like that, there's obviously no... Wait. What? What? Whose mother? No, Dell's mother, but Dell's mother's not the one who molested Dell. No, it was Noah's mom, because she would say he would come over to Noah's house, and she was a silly kisser. It was Jeliza's grandma. No. Yes. No, we're led to believe that. So we we didn't mention this, but when Rose and the Lady in Black first meet, okay, we find out that um, Dale's mom was killed by bees. Right. And her eyes were popped. Like, right, yeah, killed. I remember that. And the lady who was in basically... Um, Embalmed upstairs. Yeah, with like had the, no eyes. Yeah, she had amber, the amber eye. Yeah. Because, that popped out. Because that's... They're the same woman. No, I know that. So Are, are you Del, saying the same girl that the same... But she's not the same one who molested. Yes. No. Yes. No. I'm, I, I feel strongly I about feel this. I feel strongly about this. This will be housekeeping this for next only, week. But again... They only reinforce forces like the cycle of like, because we're then led yeah. to believe, we're then led to believe that Dell and Noah, there there was incestual like incestual relationship there. Wait, Dell and Noah are related? They're brothers and sisters. What? Yes, that's what I. That is how I read this. No. Yes, which would then make. D- they cousins the, and make Dickens part of the way he has an incest baby, which would cause some of the issues. Man, I didn't get that. Yeah, it's my you even got a darker tone. It's messed you up. You were even darker than I was in this film. Yes. Oh my gosh. See, I don't. I don't know if I subscribe to that. Not, not 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 because of the darkness. I just didn't get that from it. Yeah. I thought they were just close neighbors, it's, and she was always infatuated no, with Noah. It is, and then like because of that. Dick, I now I knew that Noah and Dell's Dickens was their son. I got yeah. that, but I did not get the fact that they were brother and sister. And I definitely got the fact that I thought that they were live this lived on the similar plots of land. And then she, Noah's mom, yeah, aka Rose's grandma, was the one who molested Dickens when he came over. We wouldn't. I don't think we wouldn't have had the. We would not have been told the B story mm. about the woman, the old woman, or whatever, if they weren't connected. There would have been no reason for that. Well, she wouldn't have been able to molest Dell. Yeah. Or no, 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 wait. She wouldn't because she died before Dickens was born. So Dell's mom couldn't have been the one to molest their Dickens because Dickens is their son mm. at that point. Look it up. I, 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 mean, I, that is what I thought. Okay. I, I don't know. I just, I, I didn't look at it that way. That's wild. That's the, that's the good thing about Tideland, dude. Tideland has so many strings to it yeah. and leaves so much to interpretation. Yeah. I don't know. It's wild. All right, hang on. Uh, Dell and Noah. 
you can look that up. But one of the things I was trying to get get at though is if that's the case, Dell's uh, real personality shift. Oh because, gosh, that's so sad. Because I think because I think that she is the way she is in the beginning of this movie because she kind of whether she realizes everything was not kosher or not is one thing, but like she basically had, had accepted like I need to protect, I need to 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 you know kind of close myself off to to that. Um and then the but the moment that she realizes Noah's still around, it's like she immediately reverts back to this this mindset of like, yeah, it's incest. No. No? I don't think so. What? No. On the IMBD plot synopsis, it does not allude to that whatsoever. I don't think so. It doesn't come out and say it my way or your way, but the way I read it still doesn't read that way. It just, it seems... I think we're both going to have to do some in-depth research on this. And I think, I think ultimately maybe he leaves it vague on purpose. I, I think it's, I think it's left that way for interpretation. Yeah. So you're, that is, that is how I interpret it. So it, though, I think we've learned something important today. I thought I had a dark mind. Apparently yours is darker. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but no, let's be real. Thailand was good, man. Yeah. And you know, I, I thought the performances were great. I, once I got past the accent, but I thought the performances were fantastic. I thought the, cinematography of the film too was gorgeous especially when you come off and you know you watch Parnassus first and I you know I'm in yeah. the back I'm, I got the backlog of I've only not seen I think three or four of Gilliam's films as being one of them yeah um so most of the other ones I've seen are so vibrant fun light even though they still all tackle yeah. societal issues and stuff like that this one's just done so heavy-handed and so <laughs> I just draining emotionally draining that's what I said about the film I was uh let's see I said Thailand is, well, different, at least by Terry Gilliam's standards. Thailand stands in stark contrast from Gilliam's other light and colorful works by being incredibly thematically heavy and intermittently disconcerting. It's bleak and emotionally it's a bleak and emotionally draining perversion of Alice in Wonderland, which Gilliam leans into the depravity of humanity, stuff like that. So I don't know, man. It's it definitely doesn't warrant the I think it's got a three point one on letterboxd, which is fair. I just the reviews on why don't hold up for me. Sure. I I mean, the reasons why. Yeah. I, 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 I can read some of them now. I just don't get, I think people miss the point. People are getting hung up on Brendan Fletcher. People are getting hung up on the silly kissing. People are, people are just seeing what they want to see. I, I, I think this is one of those films that may be too self-reflective for some people. And I'm not saying it because they've relived it. Yeah. I just think it's an uncomfortable film on purpose yeah. um, because of the story it's trying to tell. But it's a fantastical, depressing film. Absolutely. So it's, uh, but I definitely liked it. I, uh, you know, four star rating is way more than I thought I was going to get this out of was, this one. This was four for me. Um, and I, it, it's really kind of set the bar for, especially when we get into movies like Kingfisher, because I think it, it, it'll be closer to like this, because I haven't seen Kingfisher. Is it Fisher's King? Or Fisher's King. I think it's Fisher's, yes, King. It's Fisher's King. I haven't King. seen Fisher's I'm King sorry, either. Yeah. So, and that's a good thing. That's the fun thing about Terry Gilliam. Because I wish now, in hindsight, I had watched Tideland then Parnassus. Yeah. Because I would have I would have liked to have had the... <sighs> like a, a breath of <laughs> yeah. breath after this one. Um, 
like I said, my initial reaction and thoughts after this were three and a half stars, but I bumped it up to four. Um, Because this film is just so masterfully layered and deep and contextual. Thailand is great, but it still doesn't lose the imaginative prowess that he's known for. But like that's the thing. he's such a genre definer because you have imaginary Dr. Parnassus, which is just like um, like a spiritual awakening film. Yeah. And then you have Twelve Monkeys, which is one of the greatest sci-fi films ever made. And then you have uh, Tideland, which is a <laughs> just a monster <laughs> of a thematic film. Uh, you got Monty Python, which is one of the greatest comedies of all time. All of those three films. You have Time Bandits, which yeah. is a classic, you know, you know, almost like a kid's escapism film. And then you got Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, which is just a drug film the whole way through. Like, it's crazy. Like, he's just all over the place. That's what makes Terry Gilliam so damn good. Yeah. I can't wait to continue on this journey. Speaking of, let's talk about, unless you have anything else to add about Tideland. Would you recommend people watch it? Uh, n- No, I don't think I would. Even though it's a four star film for you? Yes. Is it yeah. a one and done film for you? Uh, let's get through some more Terry Gilliam stuff and I'll decide if, if I feel like there's, cause if it, if it's a rewatch, then that I feel like is it one you would watch with Caitlin? No. Why? I, Caitlin, I, I don't know her movie palette taste. Does she like darker, like darker films like this? Cause yeah, she can, but I think there's a line for her. And this will cross um, them. I think this might, yeah. One or two things might cross a line. I don't think Abby would like it. Not. Subject matter, sure, but I don't think Abby would like it just from the... I, I think the lead and stuff would get on her yeah. nerves. Yeah, I agree. Um, okay, so let's start. Unless you have anything to add, let's move on to yeah. Doctor, the Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus. Yeah. All right, so I'm going to say it right now. On my letterbox, you know, you have your five favorites you put on there, which is big. mine is The Big Lebowski, Anchorman, Pan's Labyrinth, and The Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus. And I, I've seen The Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus maybe six or seven times in my life. Uh, and it's been a few years since I've seen it since. So trying to watch it, uh, and definitely the first time since I've been using Letterboxd. Um, I was like, all right, I'm going to go into this objective. And I, I, I wanted my mind to be changed. Yeah. Really. Because I have it as a five-star film. One of my all-time favorites. It's still a five-star film. Still yeah. one of my all-time favorites. If I was on a desert island and I could take three or four films, this would be one of the ones I'd take. Okay. I'm not saying it'd be the one I'd take. If I could only take one, I'm not saying it'd be the one. But if I had a f- options, it would be definitely top five for me yeah. to choose. The Magic of Dr. Parnassus is possibly the most creative and mind-numbing film I've ever seen in my life. And I love it. And the performances, you can't ask for a much better cast either. Like, Andrew Garfield has, has a knack for finding these weird-ass movies. Listen, Andrew Garfield is a theater kid. You didn't know he was in this, right? I didn't. Yeah. No, it was, it was a great surf- uh, surprise. And he was and, great in it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he, he, he just has a lot of people our age get introduced to him mm-hmm. really Dude, get he's it. like 40 really get yeah he's old um, oh, wow. he looked old by the, at the end of this movie too but uh most people just relate him to spider-man but mm-hmm. i think you know this type of work for him is like the real andrew garfield yeah same like i i mentioned in my review you know under the silver lake mainstream and yeah. then tick and i didn't mention tick tick boom because that's main that is a big hit for him but Tick Tick Boom's great. But anyway, like oh, yeah. for underrated films, Mainstream and Under the Silver Lake and Red Riding, those are some great Andrew Garfield films. But The Manager of Dr. Parnassus is like the Andrew Garfield film. Like this film, I think this is the first film I actually saw Andrew Garfield in yeah. as well. Uh, maybe depending on when it came out. It came out, this came out in 2008 or nine, but Spider-Man, like nine. I can't remember when Spider-Man came out. I think it came out in 2010. Oh. So I think this may have been my first ever Andrew Garfield film. I'm gonna do a little fact check there. Hold on. But, 
the cast, just from the casting perspective, you have Heath Ledger, obviously, who, uh, Christopher Plummer, Lily Cole, Andrew Garfield, Vern Troyer, Tom Waits, Johnny Depp, Colin Farrell, Jude Law, uh, a young Gwendolyn Christie, which was, did you catch that? No. What? I, well, I didn't the first time because I didn't know who Gwendolyn Christie was five or six years ago, you know? Um, when they're at the mall, right after they've rebranded their yeah. uh, thing, she's the blonde shopper. The tall one. Sure enough, she's in the credit. It's like Pretty Woman or something like that. Yeah. Um, anyway, so one of the most interesting parts about the Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus is the Heath Ledger controversy surrounding it. So let's just talk about that before we even talk about the film. So Heath Ledger died filming this film. Not yeah. on the set. He just, you know, he died. Yeah. Uh, one third of the way through his filming. So he got a chunk of it done, but some of the key scenes he didn't get to film. Yep. So it, they almost scrapped the film. But they didn't. And Terry Gilliam, uh, Jude Law reached out to Terry Gilliam. Like, hey, I know yeah. he died filming this film. I would like to pick up where he left off. And that triggered him to think about, huh, I wonder if I reach out to a couple of his other friends, like his closest friends, yeah. if they come do it. So he reached out to Johnny Depp and Johnny Depp immediately said, there's a quote, said, absolutely. Didn't even hesitate. Yeah. Absolutely. What do you need? Whenever I'll be there. Colin Farrell said the same thing. So you now have his three best friends which added a whole layer for me, and we'll talk about this in a minute, made this movie, not not because of his death, but as a byproduct, I yeah. think made the film work even more for me than it would have just with Heath Ledger. Because the way Gilliam had to rewrite this script to make it work, I loved how he made them make sense in this film. Um, but one of the coolest things, and I said in my review, I want a documentary of the making of this film um, because Tom Cruise reached out to Terry Gilliam after Heath Ledger died and Colin Farrell, Johnny Depp and Jude Law were attached. Yeah. And he wanted to, cause he was friends with Heath Ledger, yeah. but not to the level, not like inner circle friends, yeah. but he wanted to be a part of this film after the case and reached out personally to Terry Gilliam to take another Tony role. Can we just pause this for a second? Imagine Tom Cruise in a Gilliam movie. It would work. It would totally work. Yeah. Cause I would love to see Tom Cruise in a role like this. Yeah. You could have totally had one more, you know, this is almost a Dante's Inferno film, <sighs> like going through the seven yeah. deadly sins. It's not, and they don't say that, but it definitely watches that way, uh, especially because he had to rewrite it almost in a way to make sense. Yeah. So you could have added a Tom Cruise and then had a almost a seven deadly sins kind of thing, and it, it would have worked probably even better. But I also appreciate the loyalty, and you keep it inner circle, and, yeah. and it kind of worked because it's already two hours long, you add yep. another 20, 30 minute sequence is now getting into overlong territory. But I just think the whole backstory of this film is super neat and unique. And I just, you don't see a lot of people coming together in Hollywood to make something like this work. And the fact that they were able to get, and I'm probably, they probably got them for either free or nickels on the dime for, you know, just yeah. coming to pick up the role. And I thought not a single one of them phoned it in. No, not at all. Um, the funniest one part is, cause I did, a, I remember reading about this a long time ago and then I re read it up again after watching this film. Jude Law originally had like a two minute screen time. And then as he got there, he found out Terry Gilliam gave him a lot more. <laughs> so he was expecting to be there for like five minutes and then ended up having to be there for like a whole day shoot. Wow. Uh, so it's just super, this whole film, the backstory is super neat. And Heath Ledger's performance in this film is also super neat because he had come right off the hills. Uh, the, the way I read the production is he actually was filming this while rapping dark night yeah so like they were he was filming these simultaneously with the bulk of his joker already done and he did finish fully the joker yeah before this one so there's well, joker there, joker was about to come out 
or uh, Dark Knight. The Dark Knight. Yes. So he, you know, but they were still filming simultaneously. Yes. Uh, he just died while filming Parnassus yeah. after it was almost done. Uh, but what's so neat about this film is you get a lot of because you don't get an iconic role like the Joker, and then get to see somebody immediately go into something and be so self aware of it because of the death yeah. that you're almost looking for it. And like there are so many scenes in Parnassus where I just see the Joker from the Dark Knight, like in his mannerisms and how he talks. And like there's like a, we mentioned on the previous pod, you know, there are some scenes in this film where uh, specifically an intimate scene with him and Lily before it gets interrupted, where he is 1000 percent the Joker, like hook, line and sinker. I was like, oh, my gosh, he never got out of role for this film. Uh, and it was great. It was I, I kind of loved that part of it. But all right, let's talk about the film. Because I just wanted to give the backstory for yeah. the film first because there's a great documentary to be made about the Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus. And Terry yeah. Gilliam's getting old. So maybe it's a post... How do you say post-Mortheus? 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 Mortheus? Post-Mortheus? Well, I'm thinking, I know post-mortem, but there's like a post-something, whatever, when someone dies. Yeah. It'll probably wait till then. You get a Terry Gilliam biography, whatever. But I would love to see the backstory of this. So let's talk about the plot. The Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus. What do you think? Because you gave it three and a half, and I'm I, a five star. I did not like it. I, well, three and a half star isn't ind- indicative that you didn't like it. Well, I gave it three and a half for many different reasons. Um, so let's hear some of them. Imagery is amazing. CGI knocked it so bad. This movie does not hold up. Even, no, well, even no, that's, two- the, that, that's the point. Is it? Terry Gilliam came out and said that then. Like in two thousand, when this came out in two thousand nine, CGI was way ahead of where this was. Yeah, he purposely chose it in, in the press releases. He said, "I didn't spend the money on this because I didn't want it to look hyper realistic." He said, "I want it to be like a dream, not not something that's like overly realistic." So, and that's the point of it. It works doubly for me. Well, my dreams don't look like that. My dreams don't look anything like that in general. But that's no. the point. It's supposed to be like a. I think he, if I'm not mistaken, he akin it to wanting to be kind of like a Willy Wonka. Yeah, uh, which in that I, he nailed. I get that. Um, I saw better graphics. I feel like in the Spy Kids movies. That's what exactly he had the money and the budget for it. He just chose not to do it. Uh, I don't think that's true. That's what I read. I don't know, but I don't think that's true. Because they were struggling to come up with a few grand for different part, parts, and that's, that's when they true. found out about you know, Ledger. So maybe, maybe that was his Our, justification. Yeah. for it, but that I. I I, I just it. took it at face value when I read that article. Yeah. I, when you are as creative as Gilliam is mm-hmm. and you can, whenever it comes to practical mm-hmm. set pieces, yeah, like the, the, the carriage, like, you mm-hmm. know, like that is Terry Gilliam to me. Yeah. And like the dreamscapes he made, take the animation aside of it. They were yeah. creative, highly creative yeah. and intoxicating little worlds. Yes. I, I don't know. The, the, there's different moments, though, that it was too distracting from mm-hmm. what was actually happening in the movie. Like what? The back, the dreamscape worlds? Yes, yes. See, and that's yes. the stuff that worked for me the most. See, yeah, I'm a sucker I, I for it. that LSD stuff, man. And it's like, not, though. It's just it's bad. No, nah, dude. I loved it. It still works for me. Mm. And you know, this is like one of Tanner's all-time favorite movies, too. Oh, that's, that's okay. No, no, I, no. I'm just saying, did you know that? No. Yeah, yeah. This is one of Tanner's like all-time I, joints. Again, I... 
there were parts in this mm-hmm. that I I did like. So what worked the most for you? And I, I know you just you were starting to get casting. Into it. Casting was one of them. Did you think all the performances were good? Yes, absolutely. Even like the post post fills. Would you Law, Colin Farrell, and Johnny Depp? Out of necessity, yes. Who do you think was the best of the three? Colin. See, I, I'm I'm torn between Colin Farrell. He had the Colin Farrell had the most screen time. Yeah. Johnny Depp, I think, did the most with so, what he had. I was uh I was watching this. Caitlin was working in the kitchen or something, and um it was before the dreamscape. Mm. I was uh she had made the comment. I was like, wow, he kind of looks like Johnny Depp. And there was literally the next scene. He turned into Johnny Depp. <laughs> and she was like, what? oh my God, what happened? <laughs> and then I had to explain the he whole story. He was in the height the of uh, Jack Sparrow too. Yes. And you could see Jack oh, Sparrow. <laughs> the mascara was still running. Yeah. Uh, but like when the when the serpent river came up, yeah. that was Jack Sparrow 101. Those Ugh. mannerisms. Ugh. Just the... Anyways, I, I don't know. I enjoyed it. Um, I did... So casting was great. Story overall, knowing that he had to rewrite rewrite a lot of stuff, I feel like he made it what he made a lot out Mm -hmm. of it. um, Then really probably was there. I would have been really interested. I would have loved to seen the original screenplay. Yeah, because they said he had to like go because it took a lot. When this released, like, or released whenever, but I think it took an extra three to six months of production and rewrites to get it to where it needed to be. Yeah. Um. I, I, the premise of the film I love yeah. simple premise a wager between basically it's not God people will say it's between God and the devil Parnassus isn't God he's you know well there's a there's a book though that uh, I saw a review honestly on this is it based on a book well there is a book out there I forget what it's called if you give me just a second I'll pull it up but Could, I like the premise just it's yeah. like a simple you know, for to just say, dress it up a, a wager between who can get the most souls between the devil and God, yeah. and win them over. Um, so like you know, they enter the mind. Of, here's the plot of the film. It's a traveling trope. Uh, you have Christopher Plummer's character Parnassus. You have his daughter Lily Cole Valentina, and you have Vern Coyer Toyer, who's like his, who's like Parnassus, basically angel on his shoulder, keeping him in check. Um, and then you have Andrew Garfield's Anton, who. Did they really explain how they picked him up, or he's just kind of always been a part of him? Uh, he was basically a a street urchin type person. Okay, like a magician, like a, a turning tricks kind of thing. No, I think he was just uh, a homeless kid. Okay, just living so they the adopt streets. him basically, and yeah. he's in love with Valentina. So there's this traveling trope. They take people in. They're like this really cheap carnival sideshow, uh, and people come and they pay and they enter this mirror. And when they go in there, they're actually entering their own construct of their imagination yeah. and Parnassus kind of moderates it and can help them out but they have a choice once they're in there to choose you know to give into the light side of the like make the right choice between basically it's different for different people like the first guy you get he's an alcoholic and he has a choice to overcome that by climbing a steep mountain or he can go into the CD bar and he makes the wrong choice goes into the CD bar and meets his own demise um, and then one lady, the one with Johnny Depp, you know, she meets Lust. That's that one's all Lust. They could go to a seedy one night stand hotel, and they send them on a nice gondola back. You know, make the right choice. Yeah. So each person has they enter their wildest dreams, and it, what they want could come true. But you have like your best part and your worst part once you enter the imagination. Um, and only one person can enter at a time, or you get multiple imaginations in there, which is what happens with Heath Ledger. Which is one of the most brilliant parts of the rewrite is that. You know, when Heath Ledger died, they had to explain how to, they still had to film these other dreamscape scenes. So what they did was 
uh, they entered. So Johnny Depp, Jude Law, and Colin Farrell all represented different parts, wants, and desires of Heath Ledger's subconscious. Uh, so when he entered these different dreamscapes, like Johnny Depp represented lust, Jude Law represented, um, what would you say, fame? Like he wanted to be more yeah. greed, like yeah, money lusting. But sure. Colin Farrell's was what power maybe or image. Colin Farrell's, yeah. So like they each represented different things he wanted, the yeah. worst parts of him. And so as each world he entered, his face changed based on the different desire, which was a re- which is really a stroke of Terry Gilliam's genius to make that work uh, and, and and pull it off so well. Um, so I really love that. Um, anyway, so the devil, the the wager they made was Parnassus. After, he was granted immortality um, by the devil um, in order, but the process, the trade, so he could be with Valentina's mom was his love. Yeah. And um, the trade-off was, is once they had a baby, that baby would be the devil's baby. So they eventually, after an eternity together, basically, have a child. And Christopher Plummer, Parnassus, makes another deal with the devil. First of five souls, you know, you can keep your daughter, vice versa. And he Parnassus loses and loses and loses and loses and loses yeah. over a whole lifetime. And his assistant, the dwarf, Vern Toyer, is, is granted immortality with him. And it's kind of like his, you know, like I said, angel on his shoulder, kind of keeping him, you know, at bay yep um but he's a sucker he's a glutton for the gamble um even when he wins he wants more um so they keep gambling over valentina's wife and the devil is also kind of a <laughs> sympathetic character he doesn't actually ever want it to permanently be over because he enjoys the game and yeah. he never collects enjoys his the company re- yes he doesn't he never collects his reward yeah. he enjoys his time with parnassus more than he does wants anything else um it all worked for me the premise worked the writing worked the script worked the performances worked for me, the dreamscape animations worked because it just was so unrealistically animated. I loved it for me. Yeah. Um, and, and it's just, it's just right. And I love the monk backstory too. You get to see where they eventually, where they met. I love the whole scene where I'm taking everybody's mouth away. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It just worked for me. And Tom Waits played a great, great, great devil character. Just yeah. a smoothy, slimy greaseball. Do you have it pulled up? Yeah. There's a, a brief description. So, one of the things that uh, I saw a review that kind of pulled from is that the kind of the theme of this this movie pulls from uh, the old fable, the old man and Mr. Smith. Yeah, uh, it's reader by written by Peter Ustinov, I guess is how you pronounce that. Ustinov. Don't know. Uh, yeah. So, actor author uh, Ustinov's fable about God and Satan on an uh, inspection tour of planet Earth is offbeat. Witty, touching, profound, and frequently hilarious. Uh, God is horrible, world weary. This is a terrible description. <laughs> I thought I, I thought I had a better pull up, but basically, it goes on uh, how basically God and this guy, Mister Smith, who you come to find out uh, is, is Satan. They end up, um, you know, having these different kind of wagers or stuff that basically go into the morals of the world. Uh, yeah. And increasingly decrepit God and a merely ill-tempered Satan are reconciled in an attempt to mission to earth where their misadventures point up, point up the comedy and tragedy of modern life, which if I'm being honest, what was, what was, uh, uh, the, the, uh, Waits character's name, Mr. Uh, Nick, Mr. Nick, like yeah. what was his like goal? 
because um, Parnassus' like mission was to recruit these disciples mm-hmm. that basically uh, believed in this this storytelling, this this idea of, um, I guess. Honestly, it's like akin to like a light gospel. Yeah. Like always going light and gospel, sharing yes. and telling exactly. like telling a fable, telling a story, keeping it going. So what was Mr. Nick's like to actual stop that. pull? That, that's, he got what he wanted from the beginning. It's why he took, to me, the taking the mouse was symbolic of it all. He stopped that story and he quits telling the stories. Yeah. And uh, Vern Toyer makes a comment about that at some point. Uh, he's saying he lost sight of who you are a long time ago after all these bets. Because uh-huh. um, it became less about yeah. telling the story and more about winning the bet. Yep. So he'd already won. The devil won what he wanted from the, it was never about Valentina. It yeah. was about taking Parnassus and his mission away, totally. which is what also works for this film so much more because the devil got one up on his, you know, essence of God. And yeah. that's all he ever wants. And now he's kept him in an endless loop of torment, which is what the devil does. Yeah. Um, so he got it all along, but Parnassus is so now far removed. He can't see that. Um, yeah, I, I totally get that. And I, I see that. The problem is that was not the focus of this. No, and I think movie. that's what I'm saying. I think maybe it would have been more at some point. I think a lot of this film probably got lost in Ledger's yeah. death. It, yeah, and that's the reason that this is a three and a half for me yeah. is because I feel like when when I feel like it's two different. I feel like there's two films meshed into one here. Yeah, when when things happen like a tragic death of an actor or actress, especially in the middle of production, I don't care how much money has been spent. You don't finish it. You don't yeah. try to piece something together. See, I'm glad they did though. This, this, because to me, that they made one of my all-time favorite films of all time. It doesn't feel like a proper send-off, because take the actual ending of the movie. Yeah, the Heath Ledger character kills himself. That's I, messed up. I, I know. I thought it was poetic. I. And what, whose expense? Poet, like po, like. Where like, is it? it yeah. That's up. That's up to him. Like it. I don't. Where is it? I made a comment about. I just kept watching because there's a point where whenever it has transitioned to Colin Farrell playing the Heath Ledger character, uh, where he's basically been outed as this fake charity, you know, guy, and and basically his intentions are are bad. He's basically being mobbed. Um, he's being chased up these steps that we see in the first movie mm-hmm. that you are led to believe are the steps to success of, or you know, way to heaven, for, yeah, one of the per, two, yeah. for Parnassus, yeah. like goal. And you're thinking this whole time, oh yeah, he's, he's going to win for Parnassus. Mm. And, um, you know, Mr. Nick strikes a new deal with him. And what was it exactly? Basically, like if you can get him to ki- kill himself, then I'll give you your daughter. Yeah, back. basically. Now that that's part of it. I want to see like, cause I can't imagine that Jude Law, Colin Farrell, and Johnny Depp would have signed on to this film, and knowing Terry Gilliam and how he is, I don't think he would have just wrote that in because of how he died. I think that was no. probably already there. Yeah. Um, and that's why I think it was just shockingly poetic. Yeah. Like how that all, and it worked for me, but I can see how it wouldn't doesn't work for you. I, I I liked it. Yeah. I. I don't know if it was. I don't know. It's just the, just knowing, not I can't know exactly what he went through, but just knowing what he went through, what he battled, battled through for it to happen the way that it happened mm-hmm. any other way, I probably would have been fine with it. Um, even if, even them like keeping his character alive, I don't know, just the, the suicide just did not sit well with me even more than the incest in mm-hmm. Tideland. Although it wasn't really suicide <laughs> technically because he did, he wasn't going into that thinking he was killing himself. I'm sure he didn't. 
Well, no, you know what I mean. Like in the yeah. film, it wasn't. It was yeah. a Russian roulette gamble, and his Eric Hubris got yeah. hit him in there. But yeah, I, I mean, I, I can see that. I just am in the other camp it, of it. And tying back into like what the theme of of this movie mm-hmm. initially was probably meant to be, I would have been so much more interested in knowing what that was about. Yeah. I just feel like the the theme, the plot of this, kind of got lost in all the transition of it. Yeah, I felt like the rewrites were really heavy. Well, not- Andrew Garfield apparently had a bigger role. In the film, yeah, which I would have loved to have seen prior, um, and you can see that a little bit in how he comes in and Colin Farrell's scene at the end. Yeah, it's like it kind of felt. Oh, yeah. Why is he here all of a sudden? But little Andrew Garfield it was great. It was great. Now it was I, a it was a great call pack to Bardo. Well, no, I was little about to say Bardo. now. I remember when while I was watching Bardo, I was like, "Where have I seen a little man yeah. before?" And when this came on, I did like my Leo. I was like, ah, it was this. This is what I was thinking of when yeah. I was watching it. It was little Bardo. Yep. Uh, and now little little Garfield. Oh. Uh, but no, Parnassus for me is just you know creativity, the unhinged like un you know it's it's an exhibition in creativity and imagination and. The way I feel when I watch that film, I'm just enthralled from beginning to end, just mouth agape. I love the storytelling. I love the performances. I love the visuals. I just, there aren't, to me, very many films out there that make me feel the way the man yeah, Dr. Parnassus do. I, again, I totally understand. I had high hopes going into this. Well, because I, 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 I'm, I sing the gospel of Parnassus everywhere. When, I have the whole poster in my freaking stairway. Whenever it opened up with that theater scene, like they're they're out there outside of the bar, and you get the first glimpse kind of behind the mirror. I was yeah, like, like with yes. the wooden trees and yeah, stuff. Yeah, it's like, yeah, it's like freaking Narnia, but freaking theater set. Mm-hmm. Like, and then it just opens up into the bad CGI graphics. Mm-hmm. It just needed a little bit of texture. It needed yeah. something to to kind of. And maybe it. if I watched it with fresh eyes, like, <sighs> I mean, not, you know, I yeah, watched yeah. this in 2009. So, yeah. And I was just in th- I'd never seen anything like that before. I was just I totally get the nostalgia yeah. play on this. Yeah. And watching it in two thousand nine probably would have had a different reaction to this. Yeah. But it just it was rough for me. Because this actually played here, Paducah. Yeah. I, I saw it in it. Cinemark. I uh, believe that. And it was I don't know, it was next level for me. <laughs> I also saw it high for the very first time. So <laughs> that that yeah, also elevated that my first viewing experience to another level. Uh so that what did you think specifically of Heath Ledger? Loved it. Um, you know, knowing everything, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. seeing some of the struggles that mm-hmm. he kind of faced going from uh, his role in Dark Knight into this was... Uh, kind of sobering. There. Yeah, it was, it was sobering. Um, but I think overall, what Heath Ledger was able to do, um, I thought, set the tone for this movie. And uh, was just really sad that we didn't get a, a full picture of that. I know. He was actually in, um, he was supposed to be, so he's in Brothers Grimm with Matt Damon. Another, we'll get to that one eventually. Yeah. He was also supposed to be in The Man Who Killed Don Quixote. Huh. The other Terry Gilliam film. Yeah, uh, him, before him, he and, passed. him and Gilliam, like, they had a rapport. So did Johnny Depp. So yeah. you, before we watch The Man Who Killed Don Quixote, similar to the Parnassus, it has a very interesting backstory. Dude. There were like 50 act. They, but he tried to make it. He's kind of like M. Night Shyamalan. A lot of people, he has to get funding from yeah. Europe or self-funded because American big Hollywood is like, you're too experimental for us. You're not going to yeah. gross us profit. Um, well, and I think sometimes like the, the, the moral, like there's morally gray and then there's like, it's kind of murky, murky mm-hmm. waters. And I think Gilliam like really outside of like your, uh, 
tongue in cheek like your Monty Python like type of stuff. Mm-hmm. Like those are more like even in your face. Like um, I don't know what the actual word is, but it's just like a um, uh, critique on. Yeah. life and um, the funny thing about those Monty Python is it's easy for us to watch them now and when we get to them you know they're funny now yeah but those are like wildly controversial <laughs> when they released like yeah. people want a Gillian like hung yep so um yeah I, I I just love you know between Tideland and Imagine Our Parnassus the morality undertones aren't so much undertones as like a lot of people like to do in their yeah. films now he puts it in your he presents you a very obvious case of right and wrong and morality in each of his each of his films that I've ever seen. Now, granted, Monty Python that those the Monty Python skits specifically yeah. and like Time Bandits those are more like you said tongue in cheek. They're not more they're societal critiques and a humor yes. guys. It's actually like yes, and those are films. But when I talk about like non farce films like this one, Tideland, Zero Theorem. Oh, actually, I haven't seen Zero Theorem, but like the ones we're all about to watch. Yeah, those are more those are film films with a morality undertone but not so much under so your first two films your your ranking is Tideland and Parnassus yeah and mine will be Parnassus and Tideland yeah uh, performance wise though your Parnassus Tideland yeah performance wise yeah are you still Tideland edging out everybody in Parnassus Parnassus definitely <laughs> had a better cast yeah it did um, I think overall Tideland a story storyline yeah so you're right so story, Todd Land, <coughs> performance. Correct. Parnassus. Um, yeah, I also, so I watched Parnassus first, like I said, Thailand. Um, I watched it, watched Parnassus kind of like thrown off by the fact that all this is happening over the rights of who could have a 16-year-old girl. Yeah. And it's like, this is kind of weird. that's his daughter, though. Yeah it's, yeah, it's his daughter, but it's still a 16-year-old girl. Yeah. Um, who is very much sexualized in this. Yes. To go from that, to Tideland was a little jarring. Yeah. Now, for but, rewatchability purposes, I feel like, well, I know where I stand. I feel like I, you would I could, have to want to watch Parnassus. I could rewatch Parnassus. Way more yeah. than I could watch Tideland. Absolutely. Tideland, I don't know if I could watch that again, especially in the near yeah. future. I probably won't again. Now, granted, Tideland feels like if I ever came across it, and I'm sure I could just order it, but like, you know, everybody talks about Criterion. That feels like a Criterion film, like one of those indie art house films that needs to be like, have, or like just a culturally significant film. I'm not saying it is culturally, culturally significant, but it just feels like one of those offbeat films that should have a Criterion release. I don't mm. know, but whatever. So your first two Gilliam films, success. You're interested in the world of Gilliam? Yeah, I mean, this is obviously. I, I like directors that have a set like aesthetic, like their you know direction. Like you watch it knowing like it has a thumbprint. Mm-hmm. So yeah, definitely, definitely. On board. I mentioned this in my review for Tideland specifically. And I meant to mention it a second ago. There's not another film to me out there like Parnassus. That is a uniquely its own thing. Yeah. But Tideland, if you want to watch, if Gilliam stayed true to his typical tropes, which are great, I don't mean that in a negative connotation sure. with tropes. Netflix's Slumberland is Tideland. Okay. If Gilliam did Tideland like he does his other films, so again, imagine like even the half half scaled you know level of graphics or in CGI for, for Slumberland yeah you need to you need now now that you've yeah, seen Thailand I'll, you I'll should watch, watch Slumberland it is like in terms it's a little thematically lighter but almost identically in terms of backstory and sure. stuff the same and her, the, her escapism is almost identical to what it's mm-hmm. 
it's a PG version of Tideland, basically, yeah. with Gilliam's escape, Parnassus escapism. Yeah, I like, gotcha. It's like it said, and I said it in my Slumberland review, Slumberland is the most Terry, non-Terry Gilliam, Terry Gilliam film I've ever seen. <laughs> that was before I've seen Tideland. Yeah. If I would have seen Tideland, I'd be like, yo, they copy and pasted <laughs> this into a Terry Gilliam algorithm, and this is what came out. Uh, but no, uh, out, out of 10, are you, are you, what, what's your rating for your anticipation for the rest of these Gilliam films? Out of 10, I'm probably at an eight, uh, just because I know there's some more critically acclaimed mm-hmm. stuff out there. Most of his other films are. We're about yeah. to go into, for next week, we're going to do, I think we just settled on, we're going to do Brazil and, okay. uh, the Zero Theorem. Yeah. So a lot of people say the Zero Theorem is kind of a spiritual successor to Brazil. Uh, I've never seen the Zero Theorem. I have seen Brazil, and Brazil is one of those baddie batshit movies I've ever seen in my life. I I feel like the older these movies get, I feel like there's more room for acceptance and kind of like buckling and kind of know what to expect in this. Uh, so I, I'm I'm do looking you, forward to that. Do you know anything about Brazil? No, I nothing. I was I was looking at some of the uh, just different still shots from it, and and it it looks it looks very interesting. I'm, I'm looking I watched forward to Brazil it. for the first time in 2020. It is wild. So Jonathan Price, I love Jonathan Price. Uh, it's got Robert De Niro, which De, De Niro Gilliam joint is not a combination you would think you'd see. Um, I think that's the big one was De Niro. Because remember when I was first watching it, I didn't look up the cast for it because I wasn't using Letterbox really at the time. Yeah, I was like, is that is is that Robert De Niro? <laughs> sure enough, it really was. Yeah. It's got a bunch of classics like Bob Hoskins and Ian Holm. Like, I'm telling you, dude, you're not ready for Brazil. I mean, that was a thing. Like, and this came out in the 80s. Like, Gilliam just kind of had his lane in in Hollywood. Yep. Um, so, obviously had a following. And uh, I'm just looking forward to see how well all these hold up. So... But a three and a half and a four star to start the gate isn't a bad start. Yeah. I think uh, I think Gilliam's going to end up being one of your favorite content creators. We'll see. We'll see. I'm looking at the cast for the Zero Theorem 2. I knew Christoph Waltz was part of it. I did not know that Matt Damon, yeah. Ben Wishaw, and Tilda, Tilda Swinton. Swinton. Oh, Lily Cole's back. Lily Cole's kind of like... And Gwendolyn Christie. Yeah. Okay. Huh. Oh, yeah. Okay. I meant to mention this in the Parnassus one. Did you know Peter Stormar uh, was in it? No. The Peter. This guy? He always plays a villain in everything. He was in Parnassus. He was like the president in a wheelchair in Colin Farrell's Dream oh, Sequence. Oh, yes. So he's in like. He was, he was a Theodore Roosevelt. Yes. Uh, <laughs> that's wild. Okay. I'm really. It's the same thing with Thailand. It's got like the identical rating. Sure. All right. I'm reading some of the stuff on here. Same kind of stuff. I think I'm going to be a fan. Awesome. All right, so next week is... I mean, we're going to go into our topic or two, but next week is Brazil and the Zero Theorem. All right. I'm very excited for it. Any other thoughts on your closing opening Gilliam takes? No, I'm, I'm looking forward to jumping into this crazy world, and uh, we'll, we'll see if I can keep up fun fact for all you out there i would definitely look up terry gilliam backstory for a lot of his films because like when we get into some of them like the adventures of baron Monchauser, apparently the munchkins in that film were like vile and like behind the scenes like terrible people to the lead actress yeah and like endangered the like terry gilliam like 
Which movie you said? I think it's The Adventures of Baron Munchauser. Yeah, I was just I was saying I was I just had that one pulled up. Um, apparently, like Gilliam endangered the child actress, the lead, a lot, <sighs> and not purposely. They just said like in the like the features for it say yeah. like his imagine his imaginations are so big sometimes he's just like damn the cost and oh. just just puts people in nature. <laughs> no joke. But that's art, man. You know, yeah. you got, uh, uh, artists has got to create. Yeah, I know what you sign up for. So let's talk about the best of the worst. Uh, so this is kind of our definitive ranking, not ranking, but our choices of some of the worst films that we've seen, either by our standard, and we'll preface as we go through, or just critically de- despised films that we enjoy. So I want to start. And I want to start with Strange Wilderness. So this is a Steve Zahn-led... Uh, okay, so these are these are movies that we think, or or others think, that are so bad that we that are just somehow good somehow we think they're good or there's they're so bad that they end up being good whether it's by purpose or on accident so let's start with strange wilderness for me okay it's got a 2.4 average rating on letterboxd um which i mean it's been shit on for a long time so it's got steve's on jonah hill um let's see some of the other justin long man half the people aren't even mentioned in here I'm looking at this like it's got. Um, I'm gonna open it in IMBD because this has got one of the most extensive who's who's of cameos I've like seen in a long time. It's got Alan Covert, Covert from Grandma's Boy, uh, Peter Dante from Grandma's Boy, Blake Clark, Jeff Garland. Hang on, I'm looking. There's a couple huge cameos. Why can't I find them? Whatever. I don't know. So it's the long story short. The synopsis is with the ratings dropping for a wilderness themed TV show, two animal fans go on, go to the Andes in search of Bigfoot. So Steve's on his dad is like the big, it's basically like the Steve Irwin of his day. Yeah. And his dad's disappointed in him. He tried to take over the show and he sucks at it. Uh, so him and his stoner friends, uh, which this is the cover for it. I don't remember that at all. Yeah. Him and his stoner friends, which is you get like peak, peak Jonah Hill, Justin Long and the guy from Super Troopers. Yeah. So like, I mean, it's just great. Uh, They go on the hunt for Bigfoot. There's con- they're convinced he exists. And in the meantime, they get all of these, you know, terrible hijinks on the way. Like, for instance, one of the guys, Steve Zahn's character, his cock gets bit by a turkey and they have to go to the doctor to get oh. it pulled off. And they keep like, it's just, it's like the most slapstick, gross comedies you could ever imagine but it's only 87 minutes so people just sensitive man uh adam sandler produced it uh it's a happy madison production gotcha i there's one scene specifically that to this day i will go watch and just laugh uh they're they're filming the shark the underneath of a shark's face and it's got like this goofy smile and they're talking about Steve Zahn's doing a voiceover like, and this is the basking shark. It likes to, oh, oh shit, run that back. And he sees it. It looks like it's got a goofy smile. And he's just going, oh, 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 And they keep rewinding it, making it like laugh. Yeah. It's like that kind of comedy yeah. the whole way through. It's a, this is 100% a stoner comedy. Gotcha. And it's a, it's, it's just a travesty that people haven't seen it. This would be fun for us one day to do, to keep this list and us watch these. The worst of the best. And then just see if we agree and then just tell well, like, hey, you know what? This is just the worst of the worst. Well, I, I told you whenever you kind of brought up this topic, I struggle with this because I, I'm i the type of person 
I don't waste my time with bad movies, which I'm trying to challenge myself in with 2023. It's I'm yeah trying to watch just whatever, try to stay up to date. And uh, if it's bad, it's bad, but whatever. But looking back at some of the movies where I've thought, you know, I've really enjoyed that maybe someone else obviously doesn't. Uh, one of the first that kind of came to mind uh, is Hail Caesar. Uh, is that George Clooney? Yes, uh, Coen Brothers. Yes, that uh, one people hated. I didn't love really? it, but it's, I didn't. It's a it's a three. It's a three point two on Letterbox. Um, this one's probably I saw it in theaters. A four. You know, you got Josh Brolin, George Clooney, um, some. Uh, you got Ralph Phineas, Scarlett Johansson, Tilda Swinton. Uh, you know, it's a Coen film, so you you've They're got to get the names. You've got all the names. Uh, but it's basically when a Hollywood star mysterious, mysteriously disappears in the middle of a filming. That was George Clooney who disappears, right? Yes, the okay. studio sends their fixer, uh, which is the uh, Josh Brolin character, to get him back, which he's basically just like a producer on this film, mm. you know, whatever. Uh, set in the 1950s, the story was inspired by the career of Eddie Mannix, which is, um, I think, so, I think the thing that really threw people off was, um, it just felt very anticlimactic. It did. I remember seeing it in theater. I saw it with my buddies and we're like, because the trailer kind of, it, it reminded me of Burn After Reading. The trailers. Uh, Burn After Reading is. <laughs> I appreciate it more now that I'm older. Yeah. Seeing it in high school though. I, I was like, it. nah, this ain't for me. Yeah. And the same way I felt about Hell Caesar. Now I haven't watched it since it released. Yeah. When did it come out? 2009? No, 2016. Are you shitting me? No. 2016. Maybe I didn't see that in high school. What am I thinking of? I don't know. Maybe Burn After Reading? I don't know. Maybe. That came out when I was in high that school. Was, that was Young Pitt and mm. Young Clooney. That's wild. I'm thinking of another movie then. I yeah. mean, I've seen Hell Caesar, but yeah. I'm thinking of another movie that I saw in high school similar to that. Yeah. I, I mean, it's just, it's funny. Um, I, I couldn't give you, it's been a while since I've seen it, so I, I can't give like a fresh recap on it all. Um, I just remember enjoying the whole ride mm -hmm. of this. Um, and, and Clooney gives a very oddball goofball <laughs> performance here too but it's it's he's just trying to find his Nespresso it's machine it's the type of yeah it really is there's a moment I yeah. know <laughs> it's so great uh, but yeah I would I could watch I could rewatch this anytime and I probably will rewatch this at some point this week you know what's funny I was thinking about Strange Wilderness too Strange Wilderness came out in 2008 and I saw that in theaters yeah and same thing with Hell Caesars I feel like those movies are the kinds that go straight to streaming and VOD now. Those probably wouldn't find the light in the theater. Now, a Coen Brothers-backed movie might still get the theater pool, but sure. even with Hell Caesar being the film that it is, I think Hollywood execs in this culture would send that to a streamer. Like a, like a good I one, like, like an Apple TV Plus I feel like they tried to with See How They Run. Yeah. No, I like See How but They Run. See How They Run was terrible. I give it three and a half. Uh, it was probably three for me, and I could probably give it lower. Really? Yeah. Like I, I said, it. man, I'm trying to be more strict with my stars. But I got to give them value. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, Hell Caesar, great movie for me. Great movie. What's next for you? Okay, now this one, I objectively think is a good movie. Okay. Like, Strange, Strange, Strange Wilderness, I can say is objectively is a bad movie. Yeah. All around, it's a terrible film, but I love it. This is not one of those. I think objectively, this is a good film that got unfairly criticized. For whatever reason. And I, it's a travesty. We're not going to get more. Give it to us. John Carter from Mars. Disney's John Carter. Okay. With Taylor Kitsch. This, I saw this in theaters in Key West with Tanner on our little bromance getaway. For oh, a week. so cute. We stayed in a tent together on the oceanfront <laughs> in Key West. And we went and saw 21 Jump Street in theaters. And we went and saw John Carter. <laughs> it was a great time. Anyway, uh, you got Taylor Kitsch. 
Willem Dafoe, Thomas Hayden Church, Mark Freaking Strong, James Purefoy, Brian Cranston, Daryl Sabara. I mean, what a great cast. And it was good. It looked good. People just don't like freaking Taylor Kitsch, man. Ever since his Tim Riggins role, oh boy, ain't find much luck, except for his uh, role in The Terminal List, which just got renewed for season two with Chris Pratt. Oh, really? Prime. So I'm very excited about that. He's reprising his role. But anyway, I gave it four stars back in the day. Um, it's got an average of 2.7 on Letterboxd. Okay. I, from beginning to end, this is a well-made film. It's exciting. It's riveting. It's a good story. I've never read the books, but it's a good story. The acting's good. It's cheesy, but this is a cheesy premise of a film anyway. But the cast was great. Taylor Kitsch was great. And I wanted more of these series. I wanted a whole series about this, which originally was their intention. Uh, same thing with Disney. And they that something about Disney. And I love Disney. I'm a Disney apologist in a lot of ways. But they should have made Narnia and John Carter work. Those are two series that had Disney written all over them. Yeah. Yet they failed with. Now, is it Disney that's getting their chance with uh, Chronicles of Narnia? That Netflix. Netflix has got it? Okay. Disney had it originally. Yes. Yes. Um, and the other one outside of uh, Chronicles was what? John Carter. Okay, never mind. Yeah, yeah. Have you seen the John Carter movie? No, I haven't. You've never seen John Carter? No. Probably um, because I heard that it was terrible and I don't waste my time with that crap. No, no. This is one that if you said you're going to give movies a chance, yeah. you give... No, I, I hear you. You give John Carter a chance. But no, I think John Carter's a ton of fun and it definitely got unfairly criticized. Now, well, audience I, score? This one was one the audience score was high. Yeah. Critic score was low and it bombed at the box office but then found a, it was one of the movies that found a cult following after. Yeah. So, I don't know. I, I'm pretty high on John Carter. Okay. Next for me, uh, which this is all just nostalgia based uh have not watched this movie in forever and my position might change on this so maybe we do need to do some rewatches on some of these but next for me is the master of disguise uh this is Am I not turtly enough for the turtle glow? listen man i grew up with dana carvey mm-hmm. church lady like all all the snl skits growing up um if you don't know master of disguise is based on a sweet natured italian writer named mustat uh Pistachio. Uh, Pistachio. Disguisey. Disguisey? Disguisey. Yeah. Pistachio Disguisey. Yeah. And his father, <laughs> Fabrizi's restaurant, who happens to be a member of a family with supernatural skills of disguise. But moments later, the patriarch of the Disguisey family is kidnapped. Fabrizio's former arch enemy, Devlin Bowman, a criminal mastermind in an attempt to steal the world's most precious treasures from around the world. And it's up to Pistachio to track down Bowman and save his family before Bowman kills them. I almost use this film because I love The Master of Disguise. I have it on I, DVD over too. here somewhere. Yeah. I, it's actually, fun fact, Master of Disguise may be the first DVD I bought with my own money. I believe it because it had a way... When did it come out? Uh, 20... Like 6, 2006. 2002. Oh, dude, dang, even that... Yeah, it's definitely the first it's movie I probably bought old, with my own money. Yeah, old movie. It's funny. It holds up funny too. People just are snobs, man. People are film snobs and comedy snobs. So I think Carvey had a reputation that overall seemed a little bit more highbrow than this. Mm -hmm. And whenever I feel like the Master of Disguise, when this movie came out, knew the audience that it wanted to hit. Kids. And and it was kids. Um, The Letterbox. Uh, He's got like a one. It is a one point seven. That's probably going to edge out any of mine. Yeah. Um, So I enjoy this movie though. 
did you? When's the last time you watched it? It's been at least 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe you wouldn't now. No, probably wouldn't. Does Adam Sandler produce this one too, though? I'm pretty sure he does. Produce it? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to say Adam Sandler's on the crew. Casting he crew. is. I thought so. Oh, man. Adam's- yeah, I mean, the rest of the cast, I mean, you've got uh, Harold Gold, um, James Brolin, uh, Jennifer uh, Esposito. Uh, I was just looking at this on Letterboxd the other day for some reason. I can't remember what it was, but I like this movie. I'm glad you brought it up. Yeah, you get a nice Jessica Simpson cameo as well. Um, yeah, it's just, it's a great, great movie. What song is Jessica Simpson famous for? I don't know. Me neither. I mean, <laughs> just <been> new. <laughs> All right, what's your next movie? Vanishing on 7th Street. Okay, I've never heard of this movie okay, before. So it's a uh, Brad Anderson film. Um, which I like a couple of his films. He directs uh, The Machinist with Christian Bell. He uh, directs Clickbait, the Netflix. Uh, did you see that one? I did not. With Adrian uh, Graner. It was really, really good. Me and Abby watched that uh, during our early days with Violet when she was up at night. Uh, it, it was really good. And he just recently did Blood, yeah. which is on my list to watch over this week um, with Michelle Monaghan. He did Trans-Siberian. So... And a lot of others. Those are just the ones I know. Um, but anyway, so The Vanishing on 7th Street is basically the rapture. Sure. Um, a mysterious, it says, stay in the light. Uh, have you ever played Alan Wake, the video game? No. It's kind of like that. Anyway, a mysterious global blackout yields countless populations to simply vanish, leaving only their clothes and possessions behind, a.k.a. the rapture. Uh, a small handful of survivors band together in a dimly lit tavern on 7th Street, struggling to combat the apocalyptic horror Realizing they may be, in fact, the last people on Earth. A dark shadow hones in on them alone. That's the premise of the film. Okay. Uh, the cast is Hayden Christensen, uh, Thandwe Newton from Westworld, or Thandwe, I don't know how you say your name. The main uh, female bot. Yeah. I, uh, I can't remember her name. Yeah. Uh, John Lugazimo, Jacob Lattimore. Uh, those are the big names. Um, so this is Hayden Christensen. This is 2010. He's kind of trying to move on from Star Wars, uh, doing some different stuff. Um, the average letterbox is 2.4 but I found I've seen this a couple times since saw this in theaters once again this would never come to theaters and yeah. I bought it and watched it again after it came out um, maybe it's just because I'm a sensationalist when it comes to rapture kind of stuff so I enjoy <laughs> yeah. it doubly uh, but no I thought this movie worked really well it's uh, it's well done considering it's a B a B budget thriller sure. um, and I thought this is actually one of Hayden Christensen's better films as well. I thought he does. I thought he does a pretty good job here. Uh, it's thrilling. It's exciting. Uh, now, granted, I haven't watched it in probably 10 years either. Uh, but I would be down for a revisit. I think I remember like I have the DVD down there is calling my name. So uh, it, it, I think you could spend worse times than vanishing on 7th Street. Okay. Uh, so moving right along this since because of time and everything, I didn't have a, a ton of time to think this through. But one movie when we're talking about so bad, it's good. That it's always going to end up my list is Norbit. That movie's ass, man. No, no, nah, that movie's so bad. When was the last time you watched it? I don't know. Watch not it not long enough. So Norbit to me kind of is like ground zero for this style of movie. Now, granted, there have been all kinds of movies like this, like uh, Undercover Brother, kind of rings. Undercover rings Brother's way better than Norbit, but it's not so bad. It's good. It's it's a decent movie. What? Under Clever no, Brother. Under Clever Brother's pretty good. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that's why it's not on the list. Right. But Norbit, though, like, 
I don't know. It unlocked something in Eddie Murphy. Um, I think <laughs> that killed his career. It it did something. Listen, this movie is is not good. No, there, it's terrible. There are some bad things in this movie. There are some some racially racially insensitive things in this movie. Um, but basically, you know, Norbit is basically a mild mannered guy who's engaged to a monstrous woman. Uh, uh, meets a woman of his dreams and schemes to find a way to be with her. It's a terrible synopsis for this movie. <laughs> I, su- I suggest you watch it to get a better idea of yeah, what's happening. It's bad. Uh, so basically, Norbit is a guy that <laughs> he so grows bad. up in an orphanage, which is also a Chinese restaurant. <laughs> Does he? I forget who. Play- I don't. I- I'm scared to even talk about this movie because <laughs> it's so freaking insensitive oh my gosh and it's it's honestly so late now i'm scared to hear you talk about it but i don't remember enough about it to good, add anything good. so you're welcome thank god but you've got um you got eddie murphy in it you've got uh Thandios newton i think is her name uh she was in westworld that's who i just said was in the movie yeah. vanishing on seven yes there's no s in there it's thandwe thandwe Thandwe. Thandwe. <laughs> For being insensitive now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, and, of course, Terry Crews, uh, Cuba Gooding Jr. Not related to Tom Cruise. Myron Waynes. Just freaking Cat Williams. Like, great cast. It's great. Great cast. Ass movie. I just no. think that movie's so bad, it's bad. No, watch it again. That and Jack and Jill are like a good... You were talking about a good double feature. No, Jack and Jill is an insult compared to Norbit. They're both real bad. No. <laughs> I need to watch them side by side, I guess, but real bad. So my next one. Okay. And this, this movie's undeniably bad, but it has a cult following, and I'm one of those cultists. All right. And I've had it with these motherfucking snakes on this oh, motherfucking plane. Play. Snakes on a plane, man. That's that's like a... It's got a 2.4 average letterbox. It's one of the... Okay, sure. And the audience score is like a 10%. Okay. It's real bad. Uh. I didn't realize it was so hated. And then I was looking at some stuff and I was like, I was looking at my movie collection over here. I was like, a lot of people don't like snakes on a plane. And I do. Sure enough, I started looking into it. I was like, people <sighs> really don't like snakes on a plane. But I feel like when it came out, people were all for snakes on a plane. I feel like people have started to not like this movie recently. How, how close were they? Rel- um, when did it come out? Guess. Uh, uh, 2004. Okay, no, 2006. Oh, wow. I was close? Yeah. I thought I thought it was my time's off. I thought this came out in like 2008. Yeah, I, I, everything I just think came out in high school because uh, I just spent so much time with the theater. <laughs> uh, no, I love Snakes on a Plane. That movie is still exciting to me today. Uh, now, granted, I also haven't watched it in ten plus years. Yeah, but you know, I, I do remember K- Taylor Kitsch getting killed. He was having sex in the bathroom and then gets bit by a snake. He's like one of the first ones to go. I, I've honestly never seen Snakes on a Plane. Really? Yeah, that's yeah, worth a watch. That's yeah, not worth the jump scares. No, there ain't very many jump scares. The snakes on a plane. It the, can't you, be dramatic without snakes jumping out of nowhere. You just know they're coming, though. That's the whole thing. I know it's coming. I just don't know when it's coming. You should watch Snakes on no, a Plane. No, you I should. Haven't. And you know what? I don't think there's been a sequel to this film. I feel like this is right for Sharknado kind of level. Snakes on a plane. Snakes on a bus. Snakes <sighs> on a boat. Snakes on a. Snakes on an Uber. Yeah. Uber snakes. Uber snakes. That's a reboot. But no, snakes on a plane is pretty good. Samuel L. Jackson uh, definitely goes weird. Yeah, weird here, but uh, it, it it was good. Awesome. What else you got then? Because that that was it for me. Norbit. Okay, 19- Norbit was it? I can't follow up Norbit. Okay, nineteen ninety eight's Godzilla with Matthew Broderick. 
Um, now, granted, yeah, I have a yeah. deep nostalgia for this film. I, I don't know what the letterbox is, so I'll get, give me it's, a second. It's not great. I think I, I looked up that one, but I honestly could not remember anything from it. I just remember, dang, that dragon looks so cool. 2.1. So, so far, this is my lowest rated one. Is Godzilla a dragon? No. Yeah, what is he then? He's just a kaiju? A lizard? Yeah, he's a... He's, a giant lizard? Yeah, radioactive that radioactive lizard. that got mutated because yeah. of the radioactivity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh... Now, granted, this is the weirdest take on Godzilla okay. compared to anything else. Yeah, but it worked for me. I'm a I'm a big fan of the original. Now, granted, this is my Godzilla. This is the Godzilla I grew up on. Sure, I didn't grow up as a kid. I mean, granted, this came out I was in kindergarten. I watched it for the first time when I was in fourth grade. Uh, so I wasn't watch, I wasn't yeah. watching you know these kind of movies when I was a little little kindergartner. But I watched it at a sleepover at Charlie Watson's house. Ooh. I remember uh, for one of his birthday parties, we yeah. stayed up and played Max Payne two. On the Xbox, OG Xbox, <laughs> yep. uh, ate cake and cold pizza and watched Godzilla. That's, it was a great time. Like a terrible time. I feel like oh. I'd be calling my mom. Why? Come pick me up because I don't like sleepovers. We basically have a sleepover every Monday night. Yeah, we we do. <laughs> and my wife isn't happy about it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it's all right. Uh, so Godzilla, uh, Flubber with Robin Williams. Yeah. Uh, have you ever seen Flubber? Yes. Oh, I could you- put it on there because I genuinely think it's a good movie and I don't hear that it's bad. It's got a 2.5 rating on Letterboxd. Okay. People so, just bashing Robin Williams. You know, a couple you years ago too? before I got into Letterboxd, yeah. I was in a Robin Williams interview. Yeah. I even made a list before I was reviewing. Oh, yeah. And I was watching through his films. I gave this one three what's, stars. What's next? Is Miss Doubtfire like terrible too? Probably. People probably think that's insensitive Man, now. People can jump off a bridge. But uh, Flubber. Flubber's fantastic. It's super funny. I love it. Uh, and then now I'm going to get some hate from here, from this. And I'm curious to see if this is the lowest rated one on my list. It is. With a whopping 1.7. Oh, God. Released in 2011. Uh, let me think. It, uh, Day After Tomorrow? No, that's a, that's just a banger <laughs> of a movie. So I don't even care what the letterbox is. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to name you two actors that aren't the okay. main actors. Give it to me. You have Blake Lively. Okay. You have Mark Strong. All right. You have Tim Robbins. You have Angela Bassett. You have, if I say the main actor, you'll know. You have Takia Watiti. I don't think you I know. You have Tamora Morrison, a.k.a. Boba Fett. You have Jeffrey Rush, Clancy Brown, Michael Clark Duncan. I don't know. Who's the main actor then? Ryan Reynolds. I don't know. The Green Lantern. Oh my God. I liked this movie in theaters and I still like it now. <laughs> it's terrible. It is the campiest, campiest. See, you think Parnassus is bad. Green Lantern had like a billion dollar budget and it still looked that bad. Yep. If Terry Gilliam made this movie, that thousand times better with that budget. Uh, Can you yeah. imagine? I would I would say the the graphics weren't the like the bad part in that. What's the- worse? I mean, the script wasn't great. Oh, the script's terrible, but, you know, Ryan Reynolds can make anything sound okay. Yeah. He even made this sound fine. I need to look up something, because uh, I might have an, a late edition. But yes, uh, I like The Green Lantern. I mean, it's not my favorite film of all time. I gave it three stars, but it is so bad, it's good. Yeah. And three stars for me is a good. Like, it's good. I watch it again. I've seen it a few times. It's good. Uh, fun thing, I think that came out the same year as The Green Hornet. The Green Hornet with Seth Rogen and John Cho is also very, very good. Which brings me to my last film. And this is one of my all-time favorite like nostalgia films that I haven't seen in a while, but I'm going to have to watch soon. 
1997. It's got a 2.6 on Letterboxd. See if you can guess this film. Leslie Mann. I'm not going to say the main star. Leslie Mann, Thomas Hayden Church, John Cleese. And that's really about it for the big ones. Okay. And Brendan Fraser. <laughs> what is it? I don't know. George of the Jungle. Okay. Have you ever seen George of the Jungle? Yes, I've seen George of the Jungle. Thomas Hayden Church. That's like the role I associate Thomas Hayden Church with. Yeah, that's interesting. It's his Lyle Van de Groot uh, role. I love George of the Jungle. I think it's great. I think I, Brendan Fraser is great. I don't talk to many people that don't, which makes me wonder, like, why is it such a bad movie? What's it, what's its rating? 2.6. Okay. I, I can, mean, I, can I give a late edition? Yeah. The movie that probably got me into Ryan Reynolds as an actor. Wait. Is it a serious-ish one? No. Dang. Is it waiting? No. Dang. You can keep guessing. I was going to go. Have you ever seen The Nines? No. Oh, man. That's one of his best. It's probably sh- just shit on all over on Letterboxd. Sure. But uh, I don't know. What is it? It is Just Friends. Oh, where he's a chubby boy? Forgiveness. Yeah. Dude, Just Friends is good. saying sorry. I actually didn't see that movie until probably 2011. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, it doesn't hold up. Does it not? I mean, I, I watched it probably a couple years ago. This is definitely a Christmas movie. Yes, for me. it is. Um, but yeah, Ryan Reynolds, especially in a fat suit, man. Definitely, definitely better. No, I, I like who's the who's the opposite him. Uh, Amy Smart. Amy Smart. I can't want to say Rachel McAdams. Yeah, right. Anna Faris as well. Anna Faris. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, who plays the? Was he married to Anna Faris? No, it was Chris Pratt. Was yeah, yeah. Uh, no, the nines Ryan Reynolds film. Uh, it's got a two point nine overall, and the genre is fantasy drama. Ooh, uh, but no, it's only got 500 reviews. Man, I'm like a tra- I have it on DVD here. Uh, it's a troubled actor, a television showrunner, and an acclaimed video game designer find their lives intertwining in mysterious and unsettling ways. And Ryan Reynolds plays all those characters. Sure, you're not talking about Free Guy. Yeah, 100. <laughs> uh, it's Ryan Reynolds, Melissa McCarthy, Elle Fanning, uh, Octavia Spencer, Ben Falcone. It's a pretty good movie. Huh. I'm 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 a fan. You know what movie I haven't seen in a while? What? Waiting. You know they made a sequel? They made a sequel? Mm-hmm. Why isn't it showing up then? Waiting too. It's got the guy from Still Waiting. Still Waiting, that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know of any I never saw Still Waiting. Probably because I like the first one and Yeah, and the cast, it just feels like a it's more It's got a one point eight. Yeah, it looks like a more raunchy version. Of? Got Adam Carolla, Luis Guzman, so they're back. John Michael Higgins, the star, he's back. Yeah. Ah, it's got Steve Howie, my boy, and Justin Long's back. David Costner's back. It looks like they're at the bottom, so probably more of a cameo appearance. Hmm. Well, one guy's review said literally this is the worst comedy sequel of all time. It <laughs> might just be the worst comedy of all time, period. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Uh, uh so yeah. Those are the worst of the best. Or best of the worst. Best of the worst. Good conversation. Like it. Yeah. Uh, I always come up with these last second. Yeah. For the for the topic or two things. I so, would, I would prefer a little bit more heads up. I'd have, yeah, I'd have some I'll, more. I, each week I keep thinking I'm gonna have a little more time. But this last week at work we had like I'll, ice apocalypse. I'll remind last week. you. Would that help? Probably. Like Probably. three days in advance. Yeah. I'll That's remind better. you. Uh. But anyway, so we got we got through we got through Terry Gilliam yeah. first two films. Next week is Brazil and the Zero Theorem and uh, 
Not sure what the next uh, batch of topic or two will be, but we'll come we'll up. find It'll out within three days before. Yeah. So, hey, guess what, guys? Mostly Focus is coming back, too. Be on the lookout. It's coming. Yeah. It's coming fast. It's coming hard. And it's coming to you. All right, I'm going to cut that out. So, all right. Hey, Luna's like, hey, I'm getting up for that. Uh, yeah. Can't so, get away all right, from boys, that. girls, ladies, gentlemen, everybody out there. Yeah. Furries included. Thank you for listening. We love you. We accept you. And we'll see you next week on Mostly Film. I'm Jonathan. I'm JP.